Amen. Good morning, everybody. I see new faces. I see old faces. I see young faces. I see all the faces this morning, and it's good to see all of those faces. I hope God has blessed you this morning, that you have felt his blessing uh, despite whatever's happening in your life. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, The Power of Testimony, where we are talking about how God is able to use seemingly small motions in people's lives and believers' lives, like uh, an invitation, which is what we're going to talk about today, a hug, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks, and how these small actions through these people's lives and testimonies would have a tidal wave of change for both people, other people's lives and the kingdom of God. And throughout it all, we are trying to tap into the power of testimony, the power of your story, and how and where you play a part in that story. Today, as every uh, sermon this series, we are going to be looking at a single person. Today we're going to look at this woman by the name of Rosalind Pickard. Now, Rosalind, as early as grade school, identified with being smart. She was a straight-A student throughout her entire um, academic career. She was a vicarious reader. She not only believed that she was smart, but she also believed smart people did not need religion. Now that wasn't just a a belief of hers as a self-proclaimed atheist, but it was also a judgment on those who were religious as being either uneducated or simple-minded. Now this belief grew inside of Rosalind all through grade school, and finally when she got to high school, she was able to actually do something with her beliefs. She one time held a class debate, and she was arguing on the side of the evolutionary theory that everything eventually came from nothing and over time has evolved into what we have today. She was arguing against the creation theory. Now, to her surprise, when the class was time to vote, they voted for the creation theory over hers, which she was blown away by because Well, this is just science, she thought. People should just be able to see the evidence and come to a rational conclusion. But she wasn't swayed. Science is a hard thing, she thought. Maybe they just haven't fully grasped it. Or maybe, she said, they were unduly swayed by the person who was opposing her with the creation theory. She was the most popular girl in school. She had a swimming pool in her backyard and threw the best birthday party, so who was really going to argue against her? So she lost that debate, but her fire against the Christian faith did not dwindle. So it was about this time in her life, Rosalind, as a high school girl um, did growing up, she started babysitting for many families, but her favorite family to babysit for was this young couple. Now, by her own words, Rosalind defined this couple as being very sharp. In fact, the the husband was a doctor, and she really admired them. And one day after babysitting, she'd been babysitting their kids for years at this point, but after one of the times, the doctor paid her for her time and then extended an invitation to attend church with them that coming Sunday. Now, Rosalind's first initial reaction was stunned that somebody as sharp as these two would go to church. So she didn't really know what to say, so she just kind of, yeah, I'll think about it. But when that Sunday came around, she made up a stomach ache and got out of the whole ordeal. The next week, the 
doctor paid her for her time and extended the invitation again. And once again, she came up with a phantom illness and was able to get out of it. And this actually repeated itself for weeks, she recalls. Eventually, Rosalind was getting nervous, not because of the invitation to go to church, but because she was faking an illness to a doctor. And you can only do that so long before it, before it catches up with you. <laughs> But the doctor and his wife, they were sharp, and they recognized that this wasn't going anywhere. They recognized that an invitation to church, while church is extremely important, it wasn't the most important thing, at least not for somebody who was completely uninterested at the time. No, they recognized that the most important thing was to just introduce Rosalind to the person of Jesus and his words of life. And so they devised an invitation that took a different shape doctor paid her and said, hey, Rosalind, I know you enjoy reading. How about this? What about reading the best-selling book of all time? And try it this way. Try starting with the book of Proverbs, and don't even read in large chunks. You actually, you can actually treat it like an experiment. Try one proverb a day for 30 days, and run your own personal experiment, and then you know, kind of analyze what the results are at the end. Now, this was all language Rosalind could get behind. Experiments, best-selling books, small portions, results at the end. So she bit the bait and began reading. Now, Rosalind recalls this time in her story. Here's what she said in her words. I expected, when she started reading the Bible, I expected to find phony miracles, made-up creatures, and assorted gobbledygook. I don't think I'm a, a vicarious enough reader to know what that word means, but there you go, gobbledygook. Nonetheless, to my surprise, she said, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I actually had to pause while reading and think. And another time, she recalls, as she read, feeling as if God was speaking to her directly with the words that she was reading. Now, unsure if this was like a first-time experience that everybody had the first time they read their Bible, Rosalind decided, I'll start over and, and try it again. So she actually, after those 30 days, went back to the beginning and started reading it over again. And in this time, she became extremely curious about the Bible. Not just the Bible, though, about religion and its origins. She became curious of all different types of faith. She began visiting temples and synagogues and mosques, and she critically dove in to studying the Christian faith. Now, note this. She didn't do this because she had this fire inside of her that wanted to necessarily learn more. She did this because she was ready to get this Christian phase behind her. She was ready to be done and over with this thing. She just wanted to read, to know, to come to a conclusion, and to be over. But an inward battle raged inside of her. Part of her was eager to spend time with the God of the Bible. She was curious to what he had to say. But this irritating voice inside of her just told her, you will just be happy again if you can just move past this. So there were two verses, as Rosalind continued to read, that really stuck in her brain that she couldn't get out. One of them was Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. But whoever disowns me, Jesus says, I will disown before my Father in heaven. That will stick anybody, because if this thing, there is something to it, am I actually owning Jesus or disowning him? 
The second verse that stuck with her was Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus says, and whoever does not gather with me actually scatters. Now, Rosalind resented what she felt was an unwelcome ultimatum in her life. She didn't want to believe in God. But she couldn't get past this peculiar sense of love and presence every time she went to God in his word. And she was hooked. Now, this battle inside of Rosalind, it extended into her freshman year of college, where she reconnected with an old uh, classmate. They were actually in the summer honors program before college started together. And Rosalind never recalls meeting somebody who was as smart and athletic as this young man. They were honor students together, straight A's, all through academia, just like her. He was on the college football team. He had all of this stuff going for him, and guess what he did? He invited her to church. And for the first time in her life, Rosalind accepted that invitation. Now, a lot happened, and she had many experiences in a church setting. One of the more humorous ones is during one of the sermons, the, uh, Rosalind had a question about something the preacher was preaching on, and so she just raised her hand in the middle of church, just waiting for him to call on her, which we chuckle about, but think about it. This is a woman who has questions that her whole life has been designed to ask a question to get an answer. And so she's just looking the quickest way to get these answers that are nagging on her for all these years. And after multiple passes at church and being involved in a church family, one day the preacher was speaking and he asked a profound question to her. He asked her, not her, but the congregation, who is the Lord of your life? Who is the Lord of your life? Now that question intrigued Rosalind because she knew she was the captain of her own ship. But was it possible that God was actually willing to lead her? And it, from that moment, Rosalind began to understand what it meant to have a relationship with God through a faith in the personalized version of Jesus. That morning, Rosalind gave her life to Jesus, and she talks about it in her words. She says, my world changed dramatically, as if a flat, black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. Now get this next part, because this is where we're going we're gonna to camp out for the rest of this morning. But I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask even tougher questions about how the world worked. I felt joy, I felt freedom, but I also felt a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge. When Rosalind turned on her faith switch, she didn't turn off her brain switch. She didn't put her brain to the side and say, I believe blindly. Something clicked inside of her and she was ready to go all in questions and all. Have you ever tried to assemble something mechanically and you like are missing a part and it, it works but it doesn't work at its fullest capacity? So I'm a new dad and I put together kids toys quite often. It's like a new hobby of mine now and this happens to me quite often. I'm like I don't need those instructions. I saw the picture. The kids down the road have one and I know he didn't use the instructions so I can do it. 
and I'll put this little gadget together, and it works, but then Darian walks in, and is like, well, where does this piece go? <laughs> I'll take it, give me that piece, and I'll put it all together, and it, what I thought worked before now works exponentially better as it was designed to work, and Rosalind talks about that is what it was, it was like when she handed her life over to God. She thought it had worked fine before, but after she was transformed, after, in her words, she was fixed, she worked exponentially better. Now, that's not to say nothing bad happened to Rosalind. That would be naive of us to think that following Jesus, who gave us the model of suffering, would mean that we wouldn't suffer by being believers of God. But whenever that suffering came on her, Rosalind knew she could count on God's guidance and comfort and protection through it. Today, Rosalind Pickard is a professor at the top university, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She is top in her field. She facilitates an incredible team of engineers and scientists who take her findings in the lab and make inventions out of them. One of those inventions is that watch that you see, uh, it's a smart watch that helps doctors and caretakers save the lives of people with epilepsy. She works closely with people whose lives are filled with medical struggles, whose kids are, live a life that is of unhealth and are suffering. And yet, despite all of that, she holds on to her faith in a God of unfathomable greatness and love. Rosalind used to think that she was too smart to believe in God. Looking back, she now realizes that was foolishness to snuff out the author of everything good in her life, including mathematics and science and literature and history and all of these things that she kept so dear. Rosalind Pickard. Now, coming off of Rosalind's testimony, it brings on a subject, a topic that we do need to talk about this morning. You see, there seems to be a war, war, a war raging between two major subjects, science on one side and faith or religion on the other side. We ask the question, how can somebody who is as smart or a scientist like you believe, or how could somebody who believes also buy into that thing called science? Whichever side you hold, we ask the same question. How can science and faith exist in the same world? But here's the thing, is that we all hold on to faith. Faith in some kind. A faith that, that, uh, that determines what we actually believe. And that faith is something that cannot be always proven with science. Even scientists hold on to a faith. Everybody holds on to an assumption and that assumption ba bases how they interpret their science. To explain what I'm talking about, I'm going to use the words of Harvard University biologist Richard Lewinton. He is an atheist, and he has this quote. Now, I'm going to work through this quote. There's a part in the middle that you're likely going to get lost in. Just power through it, and then we'll come together back at the end. So here's what he says. We, as scientists, we have a prior commitment. Notice that. A prior commitment. A commitment to materialism. That's our faith. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us 
to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, meaning there's nothing in science itself that says we should automatically assume materialism. It's a prior commitment we have before we approach our science. Keep going. Ex but on the contrary, we are forced by our priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanation, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Come back. <laughs> That's the one where it's like, where are we going with this? Right here's the point. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, he says, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Here's what he's saying. His faith predetermines his science. It's not the other way around. Even top scientists recognize that science can't necessarily give us all the answers to all of our questions. That we have to assume some things, and that assumption determines how we pull results from our science. Now, the same is true in the faith community, right? Our faith often predetermines how we do science. It's the same problem, two sides of the same coins. Here's my point in it. We all have faith commitments. We all have things that we wade into our worldviews that we believe, that we don't know why we believe. We may not even have evidence of why we believe, but we believe it, and it interprets how we see the world. So how do we navigate this? Well, there's three major questions we should be asking about our worldview, about our beliefs. What is the content of my belief? Number one, what do I believe, essentially? Number two, what is that content based on? Why do I believe what I believe? And then number three, is my faith position the most valid to hold if I were to carefully examine the best available evidence? We're turning on our brains this morning, and we're going to try to our best answer those questions. To start us off, let me tell you what I believe. I believe Christian theology was the garden by which modern science grew. That Christian theology has presented a world that is distinct in form, that is filled with complexity, and that has a design to it. And to believe that science and faith are opposites of each other is to believe a myth. There is no worldview, there is no religion, there is no philosophy in life that challenges us to experiment the world that we live more than Christianity does. Buddhism says that the world is an illusion. Therefore, if the world's an illusion, there's no true desire or need to discover it and to know how it functions. Polytheism defines events as actions that the gods have taken. So therefore, it is out of our hands, so it doesn't really matter what happens in the world. The gods are making it happen. Judaism, Islam, emphasize jurisprudence, the study and interpretation of law. This is what's most important to us, this law that's given to us. The world can work and function as it needs to. What has Christianity given us? Well, Christianity has given us great thinkers like Paul and Aquinas and Augustine, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. Christianity has given us institutions like the university, Yale, Harvard, 
Darmouth, Brown, Princeton. You want to know why the university was created? Because Christians wanted to get together all these disciplines, all these studies, science, mathematics, history, put them into one room so that they could understand who God was better. And there birthed the university. Christianity has given us things like the hospital and the advancement of modern medicine. And so now you listen to all of this and you say, okay, does that mean that this book, the Bible, is like a science book then? Like I should be approaching my faith like a scientist and interpreting the world through the lens of a scientist? And I would say no. Because there's two different types of science. One is answered by science as we understand it. The other is answered by the Bible. The first type of science that you can have is called operational science. Here's what operational science is. It's the study of regularities that exist and will always exist in the world. Here's what I mean by that. The boiling point of water, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, right? You can get an exact number for that. The compounds that make up soil, the number of planets in our solar system, though they did take away Pluto for a little bit. I think we got it back. I don't really know yet, but you get the idea. Operational science understands how the world, we lin- the world we live operates. That's what science is attempting to answer. So what is the Bible attempting to answer? What type of science can operational science never touch? <clears throat> that is origin science. This is the study of the metaphysical. Meta meaning before or after So something that is metaphysical, it is take something physical, what came before? What was the cause that brought that thing into effect? Or what will happen after this thing ceased to exist? So metaphysical science is everything from the planets to you and your body and your soul. Where did you come from and to where are you going? This is called origin science. And this goes, again, all the way down to your very body. The deeper science goes, the more it is finding evidence of the existence of God. So Darwin kicked us off with a type of observational science. He looked at the structure of bones and wings and how things evolve over time. But now we're getting far more intricate in our levels of science, and it seems to just keep pointing back to a beautiful mind. Now, when I introduce this idea of beautiful mind, I want you to imagine this picture. You see, operational science looks at something like the Grand Canyon. It looks at the layers of soil and all of the grooves. It can almost do a time lapse backwards and work its way to how the Grand Canyon got to that shape and form. Operational science. Origin science looks at something like Mount Rushmore and says there is no possible way that something that beautiful and intricate could just happen. This is true for your body. This is true for the fine-tuning of the universe. It's like looking at river rocks and an arrowhead, where we look at this thing and say, there is a purpose behind it. There is intention. There is a value attached to it. Operational origin science. And this is true in biology. There is code in every microcell. 
In fact, there is so much intelligent code in a single amiibo, which I don't even know how to explain how small that is. Very, very small. <laughs> that's, that, that's as far as my vocabulary gets. It's very, very small. A single amiibo, which there are thousands of them that work inside of a single matter, piece of matter, that one cell could fill a thousand set encyclopedia. Now, is that more Mount Rushmore? Sorry, I didn't mean to switch. Uh, is that more Mount Rushmore or is that more Grand Canyon? Well, ask the scientist, Francis Collin, who was tasked with studying the genome sequence, who walked into that as an atheist and walked out of it as a theist, saying, I never believed in a God, but now looking at this, I can conclude nothing else. He writes about that in the language of God. So what do I mean in all of this? Well, I'm going to use Harvard professor Stephen Gold. He's a celebrated atheist, evolutionary biologist, paleontologist, and historian of science to tell you what I'm talking about. He says, nature just is. We cannot use nature for, more, for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magistratum of religion. So to say it to my colleagues for the umpteenth millionth time, I love scientists and they're the way they talk to each other. <laughs> for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, educate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We can neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. Meaning, operational science, scientists, we have no input on if the God exists or the existence of God. That is not what we are studying. We're studying how the world operates, not where the world came from. We are understanding how the world works, not to where the world is going. And we as scientists simply cannot affirm nor deny it. Physics cannot prove the metaphysical. But we can use the evidence in science to help us point to the existence of a God. We can see the discoveries of the world, how it operates, its fine-tunedness, and we can come to conclusions like Francis Collin did that I can't believe in a world that doesn't have a beautiful mind behind it. And none of this is new. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, the Bible teaches that science is not the enemy of faith, but simply one of the means by which we look at nature and we can learn more about our God, our Creator. We don't lack evidence. We simply suppress it sometimes. Scientists often look over signposts that point to an intelligent being because, as is said, although we know God, we neither glorify him as God or give thanks to him. So let me bring this all together. This sermon series is all about testimony. Today, we have spent time in Rosalind's testimony, but the truth is we all have a story. We all come from different walks, 
We've experienced different things on this journey to get us to this moment. Some of us have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive times two. Bob, I'm not looking at you, I promise. And some of us in here don't even know Jesus. We don't have a relationship with him. We've never met him on our own, but here's the thing. Regardless if you've known Jesus your entire life or if you've never met him, you still have a story with God. You still have a, a, a story and a testimony with God. You may not know him, but he knows you. And he loves you. And he died for you. And all he is asking is that you'll open up your heart a little bit to him this morning. And to see what he can actually do in your life. There are many takeaways from today's lesson. I want to highlight three real quick and then I'm done. Number one, never devalue the power of invitation. Never devalue the power of invitation. You know I love statistics. Let me give you a couple statistics of a study that was done a few years ago. They were studying about the people who are unchurched that walked into a church building on Sunday morning. Why did they come? Six to eight percent walked in on their own initiative. Two to three percent, they liked a program that the church offered, maybe celebrate recovery or something. Eight to ten percent liked the preacher. Maybe they heard a lesson somewhere and wanted to go see it in person. One to two percent were evangelized. Three to four percent were attracted by Sunday school. And 70 to 85 percent, you guessed it, were invited by a person. 70 to 85 percent came on the arms of somebody else. Statistically, another statistic, you can likely identify seven unchurched people that you can invite to be a part of this church family. And we don't know which of those people will be a Ros Rosalind Pickard that will take multiple invitations, that will eventually say yes, that will come to a rational conclusion on their own, and will not only have their souls saved, but will continue doing amazing things in the name of God. And an invitation is not a gimmick. It's not a trick. We're not trying to trick people into trying to be here. It's an invitation. They can either accept it or deny it. But we offer it to them. And Jesus was the master of invitation. We talked about this in the Red Letter Living series. The very first one, he said, come and follow me. And his disciples picked that up. Later on in the story, one of his disciples, Philip, is talking with his buddy, Nathaniel, and he says, hey, you need to come check out this Jesus guy. I think it's the one the prophets have been talking about. This is likely the Messiah from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, he says, Nazareth, ha! What good comes from Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see. They picked up something, the power of invitation. Never devalue this power. Number two, your evangelism begins with your stature. In Rosalind's testimony, did you notice what stood out to her of the people who invited her? The very first thing in the young couple, it was that they were a sharp young couple, that he was a doctor. For the, the friend that eventually invited her and she said yes to, it was because he was a straight-A student and that he was a friend of hers. Likely people will know if they want to listen to you before you ever open your mouth. They will know if they want to take what you have to say by your stature and your character 
As William J. Tome said one time, be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible a person ever reads. And that is true in the way we love others, but also in the standard of life that we live. A life where we choose discipline, choose wisdom, choose improvement, choose integrity and character. Essentially, choose to live like Jesus, and people will take notice of you. And if people are not taking notice of you, you're probably not living like Jesus. So your evangelism begins in your stature, and then the last one, science and faith are not enemies. We've discussed this at length today, that there is nothing in science that would make religion seem innately irreconceivable. If that were the case, then if you were a scientist, you would also not be a believer. Because if good science led to a godless world, then anybody who conducted good science would then be an atheist. But let's look at statistics one more time. <laughs> Looking at Nobel Prize winners between the years 1901 and the year 2000, Christians won 74% of prizes in chemistry, 65.3% in physics, and 64.3% in medicine. In contrast, Atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers won just 7.1, 4.8, and 8.9% in the same categories. And the point of me bringing this up is not to puff out our chest or to live by comparison, but simply so we can be aware of the fact that science and faith are not opposite. That all of us choose a faith to believe, assumptions that determine our science, but that these two can actually live in synchronized harmony with each other. Rosalind Pickard was able to bring the two together. And to she continues to discover and question and grow in her walk with God. Her testimony is powerful in many ways, mainly of marrying these two things, science and faith, and it reminding us of the power of invitation. But now this turns back on us. Where are we in this story? What is our testimony and how are we utilizing where God has placed us right now to continue to express the love and truth of Jesus to people in our life and to invite them into something better than the world could ever offer? That's the question we have to answer now. Let's go to God in prayer as we think about that. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you in all the ways you are good to us. God, we are thankful for a world that you have given us that not that doesn't point away from you, but points directly to you. That no matter how many times we discover, no matter how tough our questions are, that the answer seems to always be you. And God, we are thankful that whenever we find that answer, that we don't find a God who is distant from us, we don't find a God who doesn't care or who is calloused, we find a God who is willing to come down to our level, as we talked about earlier, to live the life that I and forced to live now, and who is willing to give it all so that I would have hope for eternity after. Father God, whenever we read this book, we're not answering the question of what is the world. We're asking a question of who is the world from? Who is its creator? And to where are we going? And that is the questions that we will proudly and boldly walk to. Father, may we be people of high intelligence, people who don't turn off our brains when we turn on our faith. But God, help us give all of you to you, all of us to you. And we say this by our Savior who gave it all to us.
that model of sacrificial love. In the name of Jesus, we offer this prayer. Amen.